Property developer Logan failed to make its interest payments and hence defaulted. What will happen to its buildings in Singapore? Let's look into this in this episode. Hi, I'm Fungi from Bond Supermart. Welcome to another episode of our podcast series where we share with you about newborn issues and whole discussions on the fixed income market. Shenzhen-based Logan is among a growing number of Chinese companies struggling with debt problems. So while the real asset crisis in China might seem far away, the world is so interconnected that ripple effects can be felt across the globe. And surprise, surprise, Logan Property has residential projects here in Singapore. And that got us thinking, what happens if my property developer defaults? So today we invited an expert to answer some of the questions we have. Welcome, Jeffrey. Thanks, Fengyi. Glad to be here. Yeah, I understand that you are a property investor yourself and have been serving clients in the financial industries for over twenty-three years. So could you quickly, um, briefly introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. Um, I've been in the banking industry for close to twenty over years. Uh, been covering corporate banking where I lend to real estate companies, developers. Uh, I've been a sell side analyst. I've almost done everything short of washing dishes and, <laughs> and, and cleaning the toilets. But um, the thing is that when the one thing I learned about uh, when I was young was that I read Robert Kiyosaki's book, which is Rich Dad Poor Dad, and you should always have a side gig, and you should not rely just on your salary from your employer alone. So I I, I actually invested in property since two thousand year two thousand. I've been investing ever since. So. Um, it's been a long story. I mean, 16 properties, a uh, lot of uh, wins and losses, uh, but generally wins, thankfully. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we are in luck. Very excited to see you and share your experiences with us today. So thank you very much for joining us. And uh, I think before anything else, let us set the foundations right. So could you share with us what is a typical flow like when a home buyer makes its purchase? Like um, maybe what kind of payment phases are there? Okay, in Singapore, when you buy from a developer that is a, a building under construction that, that you call that, um, first you must put in a deposit and then after that, either you, whether you apply for a mortgage or you pay with full cash, uh, over certain progress of the development, they will the developer will ask you to pay up a certain amount. So as the building uh, completes to a certain stage, you have to pay a certain stage. So mm. it's in percentages. Okay. So uh, ultimately, there are pros and cons. Of course, you get a new home, right? It's beautiful. Everything is new. Uh, the cons is that you really got to watch out that the developer doesn't stop building halfway. <laughs> yeah, and then, oh my God. <laughs> and then, oh, so sorry, I'm out. You know, like, so that that's one thing we need to look out for. Yeah. Mm, mm. I think I heard of the progressive payments Sometimes when my friends they discuss about BTOs, I think that came up. Yeah. 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 That's right. For those who are not certain, right? BTO actually refers to built to order flats in Singapore. Yeah. So um that's for Singapore case, right? So how about payments and what are the schemes like in other countries? Are they very different? Uh in say in Malaysia it's pretty much the same, right? So when you when you buy you have to pay a a down payment, a ten percent mm. or twenty percent. After that, you get mortgage if you want to. So it's also pretty much progress payment. So developer risk is at play here, right? So uh, maybe our parents' generation have gone through that, where where uh, my parents have gone through where we bought uh, apartments in Dizaru and then they have defaulted and oh. we have not gotten back our money. Oh. So I'm no stranger to developer defaults. Um, and uh, but however, in developed countries, uh. It's different because like in Australia and UK, 
uh, all you need to do is to pay 10% down payment typically. Mm. And the rest of it, the developer has to find funding on their own. So oh. that means they have to uh, uh, get a bank loan and then after that complete the project upon completion, then they come to you and ask for the full amount. Oh, so in that okay, two okay. years, there's no progress. It's called, in a way, it's deferred payment in Singapore, which is banned. But uh, in, in UK and uh, Australia, I know for a fact that it, it's still like that. And right. uh, which is very good for the investor or the, the home buyer because you bear very little risk. It's only mm. 10%, right? So uh, in Australia right. as well, even lower risk, I'm not sure about UK, is that uh, most of the time the Australia, Australian developer needs to prove that they have sold 50% of the units oh, before okay, okay. the bank will lend them. So they have to sell and it prove to the, the lenders that they, they have actually, the mm. project is likely to be, you know, funded quite well funded more credibility more la. credibility right. that's right yeah. okay okay that's very interesting to see how different countries have different schemes in place so I have another question so I heard about this thing called the project account so as the name suggests the money within contributes to building the project um, could you share more about that and like what happens to the money inside when for example like if a default there's unfortunately a default case or the developer has financial difficulties what happens then a project account is quite strict uh, by right because it's an account that when they collect money from the uh, buyers, home buyers, they're supposed to put it into that account, uh, mm. the bank account. Mm. So they, um, um, un under very strict uh, circumstances, are they allowed to withdraw? For example, like paying for taxes, uh, engineering fees, uh, certain building stages where they need the architect to sign off, engineer to sign off that has been done, mm. then they can withdraw. Right, but there are also, of course, uh, Singapore is very well governed. Um, mm. I've heard of cases where in China, as for example, where the uh, uh, even though there's a project account, uh, uh, developers have been known to tell the investors to hey, don't put into the government ah. assigned project accounts and then put into a private one. Of course, then the developer will siphon it off. Oh. Um, that that is what happens in some of the developers in China. But mm. uh, in Singapore, it's pretty much protected. But having said that, right, when a developer defaults or mm. runs out of cash, um, usually the project account prob probably is quite fully drawn and there's oh, nothing no. left, right? There's very little <laughs> reserves left. Oh. If you're in trouble, means that the costs overrun or you're unable to sell the projects. Mm. So the cash flow must be very tight. So when they... Whenever a developer defaults and someone takes over, a liquidator takes over, the, the project account is usually uh, okay. exhausted. And to continue on with the project, whoever takes over that project, you know, usually it's the creditor that's secured. Mm. Uh, usually it's the bank. Um, there may be a premium top-up that's oh. required <laughs> by the investors, right? Mm. Uh, so to continue, to enable the project to continue, that's the... That's the danger, that's a risk. Okay. Even though it's very well protected, it's still like that, yeah. Alright, so it seems like the project account cannot really safeguard investors when it comes to a default. Like, so it's quite hard in that sense. Then, what other options can the home buyers take? Um, well, other than a premium top-up, right, that uh, seeks to appoint a new contractor, mm, right, uh, mm. you can, uh, the liquidator, right, will take over the project and then sell the, the land away. And then after that, whoever, you know, whatever proceeds will be used to pay the bank back. And then if there's anything left, then the, the you know, the investors or the home buyers will receive whatever mm. is left. 
from my experience for such a situation, usually very little is left. Uh. Because the first charge, the, the developer with the first charge, or the, sorry, the bank with the first charge usually gets most of the, the bulk of the, the loans, the, the proceeds back. Okay. And then they have to cover their loans, right? That's why it's called first charge. But then uh. after that, what's left for the rest is usually no more. <laughs> not, nothing much. Right, right. okay, okay. Then um, I'm wondering if there are cases where like as investors, I can maybe sue for liquidated damages and all that. So if we really want to sue, right, I'm also thinking whether is it feasible or not. Because as an ordinary person, I feel like um, will the buyers have enough fees and all that to pay for lawyer fees and all that, right? So Yeah, so in Singapore, I think uh, previously it's quite exorbitant, right? To get everybody together and then say, hey, I've def- you know, I, I lost money buying uh, investing on a project. Um, then, you know, because if you appoint, uh, you first of all, you need to get together, just like a collective sale process. Mm. And then you need some, you need to appoint a, a leader because you can't have like a hundred buyers voting and having a telegram chat and then vote, voting what to do. So to appoint a leader, usually, you know, nobody wants to be a leader because you're not paid to do such things. Uh. It's like a collective sales chairman. Okay? Mm, but you mm, must mm. be so motivated to be the leader. Maybe they, the person got many units, okay. a lot more at stake. Now, even then, um, in the previously when you, there are some legal changes, but previously, uh, before that, to appoint a lawyer, the lawyer will need a some kind of an initial payment to start work because it's about oh, a staff to pay, okay, right? You correct, need to correct. do research. So imagine if you tell everyone, hey, cough up $1,000 first. Mm. Yeah, I mean like, it's sad, but most people will just com- complain and grumble. But then when it comes to forking out money, they'll say, oh, okay, maybe not. Or people will pay late. So so it doesn't really help. But I understand there's recent legal changes where there's something called contingent fee arrangement or rather it's called no win no fee. Or certain variations of no win no fee mm-hmm. where um the lawyer agrees to take your case and then they do the work and only when they win they will uh earn a part of the winnings, right? And if they lose then they get nothing or a small base fee. I think mm-hmm. that that uh opens the door to a lot of a lot more uh retail investors or home buyers able to get lawyers to work for them in this case. I think it, it, it helps a lot for the little guys on the streets. I think mm. it's very good. Mm. I think the amendment is also quite rather recent la, yeah. in that. So I just wanted to check if like my understanding is correct. So the conditional fee agreement, right? I think in short, CFA, right? Mm. It's an agreement where the lawyer is paid legal fees only in certain circumstances. La. So that means it could also be like you mentioned, a no win, no fee agreement. It means if I lose the case, I don't have to pay. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Okay. So there, there could be uh okay. In I can speak for UK terms. Mm. It's very mm. well developed where we I had a case, okay, just to share with you, I have a case where I bought into a hotel room in ah. in UK and then unfortunately the developer defaulted. Okay. So we, we were approached by a, a, a solicitor to do the no win, no fee. Mm. Now you came to a very good question. Mm. So if you win, we win, mm. and the lawyer takes twenty percent. Okay, you take back 110 uh, damages, claims against losses plus opportunity costs, 100 to 120%. Now, the lawyer takes 20% of the winnings, you get back 100. What if you lose? Oh. The, the court will award uh, damages against you for okay. wasting time, okay. right? So, in 
UK, you can uh, you can buy uh this an insurance for losing the case. Oh, it's totally protected. But in you in Singapore, I'm not sure yet whether okay. this is. But it will be very good if you can. And who arranges for that in UK is that the lawyer that's representing us decides and gets quotes for the insurance. Oh, yes. So okay. we were very confident to proceed then. Yeah, that's very interesting to know yeah. that you can actually buy insurance for that. Oh, okay, right. okay. Interesting. I learned something new. Um, so I guess besides the CFA and all that, um, buyers can also seek perhaps alternative, like maybe they can get legal aid, etc. And um, it is actually unfortunately not the first case of a property developer going bust in Singapore. So previously, Singapore witnessed a case where the developer of office and residential skyscraper, the Springleaf Tower, right, um, faced problems in the late 1990s. Um, are you able to shed light and maybe help some of us understand like what could go wrong that the property developer just cannot complete its projects? Okay, so in that case in the 1990s, right, the, the developer got into some cash flow issues. Mm. So there was an agreement between the developer and the contractor. I think okay. it's the main con to say that, okay, uh, we shall, instead of paying you back cash, I will deliver some units to you. Uh, payment in kind. Payment in oh, kind, okay. butter trade. Okay. So there's always a lender involved. So mm. there's a bank that has a charge over the property financing this whole project. Okay. So the bank, uh, I think the dispute was that the bank decided this butter trade is illegal. Right, right. I want to foreclose okay. the whole project. Mm. And uh, of course, uh, the developer and the contractor is affected and they went to court. Subsequently, the bank lost in, mm. the, in the lawsuit. So so the, the property, Springleaf Tower, is not foreclosed uh, in that okay, case. Okay, okay. So, um, I think mm. that th- that was one of the landmark cases. Uh. Subsequently, there were many, a few more uh, developers uh, cases of developer gone going bust. I think recently there was one or so four years ago, as recent as four years oh. ago, right? There was this uh Juchet projects, Hillview oh, Juchet. Yeah, okay. that, that. It's the same thing when they go bust, uh, uh, the bank will usually the first charge mortgagee will come take over and say, you know, mm. there will always be not enough money in the project right. account. Back it's to the unhappy, project. Yeah, yeah. Back to the project account, there's not enough money. Yeah, so okay. you have to top up. Mm. Sorry, um, that's that's. Okay, that that's unfortunate. Then I guess the next question will be: How should we then take note of things before we buy properties? Will buying from maybe the more reputable developers help in this case? Yeah, I think it's a lot to ask for the retail investors. Uh, I guess that for for people who are financially trained, uh, you need to when you buy a development project, it's like a four year bond. Mm. And then when you buy a bond, you have to make sure that, you know, next three years or four years, the the, the, the company will not default. Correct. So same thing that, you know, when you buy a project from a developer, you have right. to be very careful, right? right? I mean, like yeah. if, if it's uh, government-owned developers in Singapore, like Capital Land, it's fine. Or in UK, if it's Barclay, uh, the largest developer, Taylor mm. Wimpy is probably okay. Uh, I think it's quite... The other things that you can look out for, the easiest thing is just Google for the credit rating of the developer. Right, right. So if it's, say, A-rated, right, investment grade A-rated, I mm. think it's fine. I mm. think they will survive. The other way, of course, is to look at the, the financials, but that could be quite complicated unless yeah. you are financially trained. If you look at things like 
uh, what is the debt to equity ratio, yeah. interest cover ratio. I mean, correct, things correct. that, you know, professionals correct, like correct. us do. Yeah. And then in a mom and pop before buying, have to look through, wow, so stressed. Yeah, only so, know how to see profit loss. <laughs> Yeah, right. so also a developer can start off as very good rated. Mm, During that three mm. years, what if you already started buying, committed, and then the, the financials start to deteriorate mm. tremendously? That's also another issue that is quite difficult Correct. to prevent. Uh, but I, I guess you just have to choose the best developer with the best credit rating. Right. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I think it's very important to do your research properly, especially because, you know, buying houses, properties is big ticket item. So important to know... Like, what are you investing into, lah, right? Okay, so as we approach the end of the podcast, it's a concluding question. With your experience in the finance industry and also as a property investor yourself, do you have any last word of advice for our listeners? Okay, this is my personal bias, I would say. Preference, okay. Uh, okay. okay. <clears throat> <laughs> Disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so the thing is that when I started out, I was very lucky. Um, mm. I never bought from a developer ever in Singapore. That's because I saw what happened to my parents. They mm. bought in Dizaru okay. or certain parts of Malaysia. I was too young to remember. That was in okay. like 70s. So, so I the, the other thing is that I realized that uh, new developments, the older developments are actually cheaper. Uh. They look a bit ghostly type. <laughs> Some of them like 20, 30 years, right? I mean, <laughs> I've been to... The, my first apartment is like, you know, in Yishun, it's like 20, 30 years. So if you can get past that emotion that is an old project, mm. then you can save up a hundred to two hundred k more at the start. When when I started investing, it was already hundred k cheaper to two hundred k. That's like twenty percent cheaper. Mm. You can save up money and do a nice renovation. Right, then you right. have a little castle uh, on your on your own. Mm. Um, older projects tend to you see it very important is that when you buy something that's existing, you can walk in and see whether the ceiling is leaking. Correct. What is the quality of the mm. project? Right. You don't have to second guess from a de- developer. I know that most Asians, especially Chinese, uh, they like something new, like Chinese New Year, like that. New <laughs> notes, new... Well, right. But not environmentally friendly, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. So, so you prefer to give Ang Pao using uh, WeChat or whatever. Yeah. So, or pay, pay now. Pay la, right. Pay yeah, yeah, right. So, so, when you buy something new from developer, there's a lot of shiny brochures. Mm. But, okay, the, <laughs> the view of the condo, the apartment is not like that. And the surrounding, you do not know. And then what is your view? What is the view of the place when you bought the apartment? Mm. From the 15th floor, what do you look at? Do you look yeah. at rubbish chute? Correct. Do you look at the neighbors washing because the next <laughs> building is so near? Is it mm. shown in the brochure? Mm. Um, I'm just saying that you. I would rather, uh, even if you need to pay the same amount, I would rather buy something older. So I can walk in and see, okay, what's the view? Like more concrete is already there. Correct. Mm. I can see what the, is it very near to the neighbor? I can see it looked in, what is the view like? And uh, if there are any defects, straight away I can negotiate down the price. Right. So that okay. that, that is why I advise. Plus, uh, not only are uh, uh, existing apartments cheaper, generally they are cheaper. But the thing is that if you buy it very old, some of them can go through a collective sale. So if your objective is to make money and to stay there as well, uh, like me, okay, uh, then then it's great because if you stay there for 
five years, six years, and you don't mind shifting, you might get a huge premium uh. from a collective sale process. Yeah, but some people don't like it. But even then, if you want to stay there for a long time, it still pays to buy something that is not new, but mm. maybe five to ten years. Mm. If you want to buy something with a collective sale element, maybe you buy something that's twenty to thirty years old. Okay. That is prime for it. So, but whatever it is, if you buy new, it's like cars. Uh, if you buy straight away, the project develops. Uh, it, once you turn on the ignition of the car, and it depreciates thirty percent. <sighs> I think property is not like that. Not so bad. But I think there's a premium, uh, ten to fifteen percent premium. Mm. So once you move in, then it becomes old already. Then we're going to sell to somebody <laughs> who wants old property. <laughs> so it's kind of an oxymoron, right? Mm. So to prefer something new, yeah. But have to think about it, lah. Uh. Mm, yeah. Okay, okay. It's a lot mm. of planning involved. Yeah. Mm. Thank you very much for your sharing. Yeah. Um Welcome. very happy to have you here with us today. And this episode was brought to you by Born Superman. I'm Feng Yi and our guest speaker with us today is Jeffrey Ong, Senior Director at Azimut Investment Management. Follow Born Superman on Twitter, Facebook, and Telegram to get first-hand updates on newborn issues, credit updates, and special events. For bond information and articles, visit our website bornsupermart.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. 